So, so now that we've stopped recording, uh, David, who's your least favorite coach to deal with? Are we really stop recording? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. If I mouth their name, can you uh, can you read my lips? <laughs> About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. What about this? This call is being recorded. Fans, we are back for another episode of the Roundup, catching up on the weekly headlines results from the professional tour and college squash. We got a special edition today. Bill, we're back. What What do you think of the streak we got going on? It's pretty good. Uh, I think this is, even though I was on vacation and we came back and we did a show on Sunday night, the, the big thing will be next week, Connor, I turn 60 on Thursday and I'm headed to Florida on Friday for just a quick jaunt, like fly out early Friday morning. Um, and then come home on Sunday. So will I be in any shape next Sunday night to do this show would be a better question. That, uh, that is true. So um, are, are we? Are you committing that you will do it or that I'll, you won't I'll do, do it? I'll do it. You know what? 60. Um, I, I want to show a little bit more maturity than I'm 60. <laughs> Somebody asked me what the biggest difference was between like, because, you know, there's big, there's milestone birthdays, right? There's like 16, 18, 21, um, 30. And then sixty, I think. I don't. There weren't really any milestone birthdays in between there. And some, so somebody asked me, like, what's the biggest difference between like when you were thirty and when you were sixty? And um, for clo- cover your ears if uh, if you're sensitive. Uh, that honestly, the biggest difference is when I was thirty, I used to take a ton of drugs to stay awake, and now I take a ton of drugs to go to sleep. <laughs> and that's honestly the biggest difference. I couldn't think of anything that is like more stark in my life than what than about that? What about pain? Well, I've, I've been in, well, I've been in pain. I've been in pain for a long time. <laughs> I've been in pain for a long time. What do you recommend for like when you're paying other people? What should we Uh, take? (laughs) If you take the same drugs I take to go to sleep, you'd be fine. All right. Well, Dr. Bill now, Dr. Bill. So uh, because my wife and I don't give presents to each other for anything, no holiday present, you know, nothing. We don't do Christmas presents. We don't do birthday presents. Do you guys look at each other at all? Well, for sure. Sure. We're still deeply in love, Connor. Um, okay. Look, look, Mr. I'm divorced. Easy over there talking about relationships. Um, so when I was 21, someone gave me a bong for Christmas. And the only thing I bought myself for my 60th birthday is a, uh, a food processor. <laughs> it's nice. so sad. It's so nice. sad. So yeah. so just just before we, we jump in and introduce our special guest, speaking of um, you talking about my relationships and whatnot, um, and, and I just want to, it kind of like shines a light on like what our podcast does for people and like informs people. So Connor is back on the dating trail. He lives mm-hmm. in DC, the dating capital of the world. That's what DC stands for is dating capital. I don't know if people knew that or not, because there's all kinds of eligible folks down there looking, uh, looking to date. So dating capital DC. Connor is. No, no, no. We, we're gonna have to cut all that, but we have to cut this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. Think about it. I'll say it and we'll think about it. How's that? No, 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 no. I'm gonna cut it all. All right. All right. <laughs> Anyway, okay, since we've just cut a very, very funny anecdote by me, we'll now introduce our special guest. Um, We're very pleased to have as our special guest tonight because we are uh, in the tail end of the collegiate squash uh, season where people are, um, you know, the teams are fighting for seeding. You're going to separate the top eight teams to the next nine to 16 teams, the teams that are going to play for the national championship on both the men and the women's side. So um, we thought it was a great time. So we brought on the. the head of collegiate squash. He's the executive director and um, he is David Pullman. He's been on the show before, but, and we welcome him back. Welcome, David. Hey guys, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> what do you think of that story that Connor cut? Do you think that was something that we should have kept? Um, it was, 
being a, a family person myself, I can see uh, I can see both sides of it. Okay. Uh, the <laughs> entertainment factor of the podcast, but the personal nature of the story perhaps is uh, is a good balancing act, and I think you've gone the right direction. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I, then. The true diplomat. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I, I'm also I, I'm a, I'm a lead commissioner and an executive director, so I have to I have to put on my uh, my uh, Uber diplomat hat. All the time. <laughs> Definitely. So understood. So if you think that's the case, then I will uh, I will I will abide I will abide. The dude abides, as they as they say for <laughs> old, they say. for people my age who know what that reference is. So. Um, so, Connor, before we jump into college squash, uh, it is the um, uh, the week after the little New York hangover, if as it were, uh, the TOC ending. So the TOC ended on Thursday night. And as with, unfortunately, a lot of uh, pro squash tournaments, it ended with a whimper, not a bang. Um, you know, the, the tournament itself, great as always. Some just some awesome matches, excitement, some some unreal drama uh, with, you know, obviously Mustafa Sal dropping out. But what happens a lot in these uh, tournaments is just the grind of playing in one of these platinum events. You get to the final and the finals kind of fall flat on their face. Um, and in this case they did one because of an injury and or illness to Noran Gohar who, um, who had to retire after uh, losing the first game and uh, right in the beginning of the second game uh, to Nor El Sherbini. And then um, Diego Elias just took Marwan El Sherbagi apart. I mean, which is I love, which I loved because I do not like El Marwan Al Sharbagi, which I made clear. So I was happy with that one. Took took him apart, and also uh, uh, Marwan just had a, a pretty long road getting there. Like you know, so a lot of the legs were out. Not to say that Diego didn't have a tough road, especially against that just amazing match with Paul Cole. Amazing but, match, right? I mean, I, yeah. I thought Diego. I mean, Diego showed me a lot. It, it probably shows that Diego was probably um, uh, more more focused on his training i would guess than he was as a younger person maybe speaking of me maturing at 60 maybe diego's maturing at his age because coming off that match against call call that was grueling i think it was 86 minutes and yeah. um just just attritional squash and he looked he looked like fresh as a daisy the next night really sharp really fresh and um quickly going back to paul uh cole and diego's match it was just really refreshing like such free-flowing squash um you know they're they're really good friends you can see that there's the respect, but it's just incredible squash. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah, very, very good stuff. It turned out the semis were, were better because the, the Sherbini Hamami final was also an excellent match to watch. Very free, free flowing squash. Definitely a lot of respect between those two and Sherbini. I mean, it's funny watching Sherbini. We always talk about it. She's only 26. Like every time you watch her and you watch her play against Hamami and you watch her play against Gohar and even Tayeb, who I believe is probably older than her. You always mm-hmm. think like Sherbini's like 40 for some reason. Like she's been around for so long. Okay. Right. And she's only right. 26. But man, the grit she showed in that match. And she like had no, exp- like her face, she was so focused. She lost that first game 13 to 11, uh, I believe. Or, yeah, yeah, 13 to 11. And came back and won the second 15, 13. And just, I mean, spine tingling fashion. And she just was like, the look on her face was like, holy crap, I'd be afraid to be on court with her. And then she, you know, won 11, 9, 11, 5 to go into the final. So, Although Gohar um, uh, retired, I'm not. I'm not sure Sherbini could have been beaten this turn. Anyways, she looked like she was a woman on a mission, for sure. For sure. So. Well, well, David, you had a chance to go to the TOC this week. What What was your impression? Any highlights for you? I mean, first of all, just um, 
I, I got to go a couple times. Uh, being in there in person is incredible. Uh, if you don't, if you don't, have you haven't had a chance to go, obviously you just missed your opportunity. But being there in person in Grand Central is is awesome. The chandeliers, there's just the setting, everything. They do a phenomenal job. And I work closely with John Nimick actually, who's the tournament director, and he talked about how they can't get any bigger. So. You know, so many times, so many sessions are sold out. The crowd is really into it, really knowledgeable. So the atmosphere is always really good. And um, so you just you just kind of get into it, and just the whole setting is fascinating. They've they've been there for twenty five years now, which is which is an amazing achievement. Um, I definitely I watched I watched both finals. Um, you know, the Gohar thing came out of nowhere a little bit. It wasn't really clear, you know, what what happened at the time. Uh, so that was a bit shocking, uh, I think, for everyone involved. And and Diego, he was just so clinical um, in the final, just, you know, picking apart, totally calm, you know, hitting the ball so true. He just had Marwan on the ropes. It was, you know, he did a great job, like you said, bouncing back from the semifinal. Yeah, in the early rounds, not to interrupt you, um, must be proud of seeing all the CSA alum who, who played in this event. I mean, it's <laughs> it just keeps getting better and better. I mean, the... Um, these graduates, you know, uh, Gina Kennedy, Amanda Sobey, Victor Cruen, you know, Yusuf Ibrahim is back. Although he lost, you know, his first round match, he he clearly, you know, made a game of it. Um, and then, you know, even the ones, you know, those are the ones who get the headlines. But, um, you know, Ramit Tandon had a great match. I heard he got kind of... Um, uh, out physical a little bit, um, but but he 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 went to five. Um, you know, just just seeing the names pop up coming back from CSA rosters, it's it's incredible, and it really shows that college squash is 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 a pathway to play professionally, and not just play um, play matches, play challengers, but uh, you know to compete at a high level. I mean, to get that degree to to train and compete uh, at such a high level for four years under the tutelage of some phenomenal coaches. And then, you know, being able to translate that, um, the, the maturity that, that I think they show, I mean, I've heard you guys talk about Victor Cruin and some of his comments. I mean, he's carried that over from his time in college and, and some of, you know, some of the ways that, that these players uh, hold themselves uh, We're you know, we're really proud of that, uh, that they're a product of the CSA. And, and no, I mean, in the number one uh, player in the world at the time uh, of the, the seating of the tournament, Ali Frog is a is obviously the uh, the shining light of uh, of CSA alumni for sure. Um, the, the 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 one young woman on the CSA alum who's a a new alum um, just out from last year is Hannah Motas from Harvard, and I love her game, love watching her play, but her head of hair is off the charts. Off the charts. She, I, I, she should wear her hair down when she plays. She would be like one of those people who like attract attention on this, on this, on the PSA tour. It's incredible. It's, it's so distinctive. It's so um, distinctive. It, the, to see it, you know, you, you can see it from a mile away. I, I saw her. You know, she hung around in the city. She was at some of the matches that I, uh-huh. I was at even after she was eliminated. And I was like, oh, you know, I know, yeah. I know that is. A hundred percent. She's so recognizable. Do you remember when Mazen Hashem used to have the big head of hair? When he first yeah. came out on tour, like him and her, her and he, or him and her, however you would say that. And my English isn't great. Sorry about that. Um, uh, those two together on court just in would be absolutely incredible. But I think she should somehow find a way to keep her hair down while she plays. It would just be an incredible. I, I would turn into squash TV just to watch that. So just to say that. So so uh, the PSA tour now go into a couple separate events for the men and women. There's no um, no platinum coming up this week. We have both the Cleveland Classic in Cleveland, obviously, and then the Motor City. Two very very strong fields. So um, let's jump over, David, since you're here to the CSA. Uh, just give us high level um, your thoughts on this season, 
how things are going, um, how this is different from other seasons. You know, the level continues to go up. We've been on an upward trajectory in terms of sort of the level of play. And it, it, it we've thankfully have bounced back nicely from the COVID season when, when we didn't have and almost any college matches. Um, and... Uh, the parity is at an all-time high, especially uh, I think this year more so than than in years past. Just because um, because of that COVID year, so many people stuck around last year, and uh, we had some really impressive rosters uh, of players, kind of super seniors, graduate students, people who have hung around, um, and and that made for a, a really high level. A lot of those players graduated last year, and so um, it has kind of set, started a reset a little bit of of the order and uh, and the lineups involved, and and that has created a you know a kind of a new and exciting dynamic um, where from week to week we're not totally sure uh, who's who's going to come out on top. In particularly, I'll highlight the the women's game right now. Uh, I mean, the level of uh, women's college squash is, is phenomenal. Um, I was just, I've been, you know, I track all the results kind of as they happen every weekend, keep an eye on things, you know, Harvard, who was number two going into the weekend, just beat Columbia, who was number eight, five, four today. Um, that's, that's something I think, uh, you, you wouldn't normally see in, in years past. Um, and this, you know, coming as we look ahead to the championships, um, having that sort of parody, those close matches, um, it, you know, some of the higher matches are going to be on a neutral court, neutral site, not, not at any of the home venues. So um, that's going to kind of even the playing field, whereas a lot of these regular season matches can be, you know, can go one way or another, depending on home, you know, who's playing at home. So um, I just think uh, it's going to, it makes for a really exciting uh, game. You know, the college game is, is under the microscope more than ever before. And there's good reason for it, I think, um, because it's great. And, th- and that actually trickles down. I mean, it's my job as as a, uh, executive director and commissioner to you know highlight all of the successes and you know the parity even you know the 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 race to get into kind of the B division right you mentioned splitting things out nine through sixteen um, you know the 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 challenges around who's going to be 15, 16, 17, 18, that's almost as exciting, if not more so than, uh, than at the top, because those teams are all beating each other. Um, I know you guys talk about rankings sometimes in the show. Um, and it's, it's very difficult to sort all that out because the, the results are so mixed and mm. a lot of them are going to have a chance to play each other again because they're conference, um, you know, conference foes in the NESCAC or the mid Atlantic championships. So, um, it's just more, more excitement to come and, and we'll try and sort it all out at the end. So so, so our, for our fans who, who because we do talk about the rankings a lot, um, so talk to us. How how are, for our fans who listen out there, how are the rankings done? So I'm looking, you know, and I always look at it because to, to, sometimes it's a bit of a mystery. So if you look at uh, the standings right now, like the division standings, and I'm, they're, I know that they're they're ranked. Um, I'm looking at, uh, like, let's take a look at uh, Drexel on the men's side at five and four is ranked seventh. Um Meanwhile, like Williams College is ranked uh, is 12 and four is ranked all the way down on to 14th. Just the disparity for the person who doesn't know the college game at all, just blanketly looking at the rankings. Could you tell us how they're derived and and what thought goes into them and, and who does the rankings? Who, who, who are the people who do them? Great question. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because it is we don't want it to be shrouded in mystery. Uh, we, we've done taken some opportunities to talk about in the past, but um, 
So I'll try and be brief about it because it is a bit convoluted. Uh, it's broken out into three pieces, essentially. The first part is a preseason rankings. Historically, actually, even before my time, it used to be a coach's vote. And we, um, I kind of found my first couple of years that that um, it didn't come out as accurately as we, as we had hoped. And so we tried to find uh, a way to make it a little more objective and a little more accurate going into the season. And so we use an algorithm that um, is actually devised by kind of a friend of the squash community, David Keating and his son. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of predictive based on the roster makeup and the player ratings of the rosters at the time. So it's not perfect because the player ratings are not totally accurate. They're not all up to speed as far as college squashes, uh, the college squash level is concerned. Um, but it's a good, it's a good kind of leading indicator of, of where teams are going to be and, and how they're, how they'll work out. Um, so we set the preseason rankings, uh, along with, we do have a rankings committee. So to your question, you know, who does that? We have, a uh, rankings chair, Sean Wilkinson, the men's coach at Princeton has been doing this for a long time. Uh, so he's our, he's our rankings committee chair. And then we have a, a group of coaches who help out and, and I've taken some more ownership of that as well since since I came on board hold on I so, won't I won't jump in here I normally I would but I won't jump in here and say I, I was wondering why Princeton who never plays is ranked so high but that answers that question so continue well no it continue. doesn't it doesn't actually and I'll get to that in a moment um <laughs> But so the um, the preseason rankings are set by the predominantly this algorithm that compares player ratings, you know, team wise from from one through ten positions. So um, it's a good starting point. Again, we acknowledge it's not perfect, but it helps us kind of orient the season. And then what happens? The second piece is is a manual adjustment period, and that happens through the first roughly fifty percent of the season. And again, we're trying to be the, the, the goal ultimately is to be as objective as possible and to put teams in the position where they belong. And so um, what happens with the manual adjustment is if, you know, teams start playing each other, there are head to head matchups. If a team that's behind in the rankings beats a team that's above them, we we shift, you know, on a, on a weekly or, or biweekly basis um, through the you know, we want to make sure we have enough results from from week to week to to actually make those changes um but that's why that's one of the reasons why you see a team i know you were talking about like trinity at one point was like nine and one right on the men's side um but the predominant you know the majority of their matches at the time had been against teams well behind them and their one loss had been to um maybe drexel or a team you know uh, or or uh, I forget exactly who it was, but it was someone who was just in front of them. And so we hold those rankings in the place where they started through the preseason um, until the teams do something to prove prove themselves otherwise. And um, and so that's why you see uh, some oddities in the records, um, unlike, you know, other ranking systems that we're used to in, in college football, college basketball, for example. Right. Our tennis, you know, it's kind of it's kind of opinionated. It's it's a little more subjective. There's coaches' votes. There's media votes. There's all sorts of stuff that goes into it, um, and there's a lot of fluctuation in the beginning of the season just based on how people are feeling about a team or how a team's look at that time. And we we try and take that subjectivity out of it and just say, okay, you beat your know, team A, teams beats team B. Okay, team B then belongs above team A, and um, it gets a little dicey, as we talked about. There's been a lot of parity um, this year, a lot of a lot of close matches and teams beating each other, and so we have to create, um, you know, we call them triangles or, or quads, where we compare, we make a matrix of results, and we compare who beat who and what were the scores and things like that. So, the good part is once we get to this third part, which is cut, we're kind of living right now. We use a an algorithm that's based on. Um, it's based on ELO, which is like the rankings yeah. algorithm they use in chess and, and other um, 
uh, other sort of uh, individualized based sports. And um, we, so what the ELO ranking does is it creates kind of like a spider web of results, um, including, and so every team that has played another team gets a connection in that spider web. And so A plays B, B plays C, C plays D, all those teams are now connected. And the algorithm then compares all those results and puts them, assigns a point value and puts them in the order based on, you know, points that they've scored to, you know, above the teams uh, below them and behind the teams ahead of them. Um, it's totally objective. So it takes, it takes out um, variables like home versus away or injured players or all the sort of subjectivity that, that might come up. Um, it it, it um, takes into account wins and losses. So a lot of times we'll hear coaches will say, hey, we, we beat this team. Why are we not ahead of them? And it's like, well, you also lost to the team who's behind you. And so that the algorithm balances that out automatically. And it, it takes um, for the second part of the season, the one that's most scrutinized going into the championships, it takes kind of the personal nature, the fact that we have coaches on a, on a committee, it takes that out of um, sort of out of contention. And uh, we use that almost predominantly for the second half of the season. So are we thinking based on just looking at what you're saying right now? So on, on, on the ground. So Cornell is uh, and we'll talk about Cornell after this um, is number eight right now. While Columbia is number nine. They play each other uh, coming up um, in the, in the next week. What are we thinking that that match will decide which one of those teams gets into the top eight? Yep, absolutely. Okay. So that's a, that's a perfect example, Bill, the spider web, the ELO results, the ELO algorithm is not complete until we have the entire, um, the entire spider web is complete. And we, we work with the coaches when they're working on their scheduling to say, you really need to play these teams above you and these teams below you during next season. Mm -hmm. So that when we're inputting the data, the algorithm is only as good as the data that we put in. So, uh, when we're looking at the data, we're saying, okay, good. You know, we know Columbia and Cornell are going to play because they're a conference. They're in the same conference, but right. Cornell and Cornell and Drexel, you know, Columbia and Drexel, they're, you know, Cornell and Virginia, you know, Cornell and Virginia, Cornell and Virginia are playing each other later this season as well. That's another big match on the docket, both for the men and the women to, to adjust that seating. And we, we get the final ELO rankings, the, the weekend right before the team championships. Right. And because, that's the, that's a complete one. Right. And be, right, I mean, it's very possible. We could be looking at uh, Columbia university at three and seven getting in over Cornell university at six and six. That's right. So, okay. That's right. Yeah. And that's, and that's all because, and that's all because of the head to head results and, and who, who else those teams beat or lost to. Got it. Got it. No, very, very, very informative. Uh, Connor, any questions on that? Well, yeah. What, what are some, um, so I, I understand there's sounds like there's three different phases that you will use those, uh, the different ranking structures or systems to do that. What are some dates behind that? So the preseason happens once, um, the rosters are set. Um, so that's, you know, roughly around and say mid October, mm -hmm. uh, when we know which, you know, what players are going to be on rosters. Um, the manual rankings go through right at, like I said, right around now. So mid to late January. And a lot of it is schedule dependent and not just team by team, but, but sort of the macro schedule. Once we get through, uh, about, um, 40 to 50% of the total matches that are scheduled to be played, that's when we can kind of transition to the ELO base because you have enough data um, to to help make the algorithm accurate. So we, we've actually been tracking it for the last couple weeks so we can see kind of the trends of where things are going. Um, 
but there are outliers. There are like like the past couple weekends because the Ivy League teams are are top heavy. I know you've talked, you've gone through the rankings and, and noted that the Ivy League teams are there. Those conference matchups happen through the end of January and into early February, and because those are so critical, um, and they have such an impact on the on the algorithm and how and the results that it puts out. Um, we have to wait a little bit longer to better understand uh, what the results are, what's what's being spit out at us, basically, because because we rely on the algorithm to uh, to lead our discussion. So, and uh, I was curious about how this compares to tennis. Uh, I feel like there's a lot more movement in tennis. I mean, there's more teams, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not as uh, familiar with tennis, but I feel like the we can be a little more tight about it because because of the smaller number of teams and the smaller number of matches too. So we really encourage teams to play the teams around them because it's so critical that we have those data points. But do, um, do they use the same kind of like struct like three different phases, uh, ooh, different algorithms? Um, like is that not that I, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. Um, I, I don't know if they have a vote, if they have a coach's vault involved. But um, it's not it's not like our uh, our system, as far as I know. Got it. Okay. So so based on what you're saying, talk talk to us a little bit about um, and we brought it up and we brought it up a little bit in jest, but it's kind of serious. And I actually talked to off the record a couple of coaches about it this past week about Princeton's lack of playing, Princeton's lack of a schedule. Well, one of the things to start with is the Ivy League institutes a cap on the number of matches that sports can play. This is across all sports, not just in squash. And so their, their um, number of dates of competition that they can have is 14 total mm-hmm. uh, over the course of a season. And so you'll notice, I think by the end that the Ivy league teams, none of them exceed that. And some don't, don't even reach the maximum 14. Um, Whereas you see the William Smiths, the Navies, the Williams, you know, the NESCAC has a has a, a limit too, but they have some caveats that that they can be uh, massaged a little bit. But William Smith, Navy, Drexel, Virginia, you know, they'll play a ton more matches. They don't have those constraints, and uh, they can kind of play a wider schedule, and it makes it a little a little easier. Uh, as far as the nitty gritty details of of why they didn't play as much, you know, I think playing in the fall can be a challenge. You know, they know their Ivy League schedule ahead of time, mm-hmm. but then finding dates that match up with other teams, um, exam schedules, or, you know, they're in the right place at the right time. You know, there could there could be any number of reasons, and I'm not always privy to that. Um, the the coaches handle their schedules um, almost exclusively. We, we as I said before, we we guide them and we, we advise them on the teams that we expect them to play that would help make sure that they get slotted in the right place by the end of the following season. Um, but in terms of the number, we, we know that they have to play 10 because playing 10 matches is the minimum requirement to qualify for the national team championships. Mm-hmm. But really you're going to see all the Ivy league teams slot in somewhere between 10 and 14. And that's the max that they're going to be able to do. Right. Yeah. I'm looking at their schedule. It's very bottom heavy. They do play quite a, quite a often going forward. Uh, they stay, yeah. they started out slow. They're also unusual. And I, I and this was just me looking at the, at the schedule. Um, uh, Trinity and Princeton don't seem like other schools where the men and women always play together. They seem like they are separate teams. They, I mean, they do play occasionally together, but for a lot of times mm-hmm. they play individual matches, which is very unusual for squash. It is. Um, but it's also their coaching structure is happens to be unusual for college squash. So they, both of those programs have head coaches for men 
and for women. They're separate. They, they're both, um, those individuals have the title of head coach. Mm -hmm. And so they have the freedom if they want to, to schedule individual matches with, with other teams. Um, now a lot of the teams that they're scheduling have one head coach for both programs. Right. And so that's why you see them playing together. A lot of time their opponents will say, look, you know, I, I can only be, in one, you know, I'm the head coach. I can only be in one place at one time. I can't, right. you know, schedule two buses and two hotels and whatever it might be. So they'll do it together. Um, but in more local matches, I think, I think, uh, like Princeton Drexel, for example, is happening on two, two separate midweek matchups, for right. example. So right. that jumped out um, to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Trinity has the same, same flexibility a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of it comes down to cost. there, you know, there are a lot of cost constraints on, on all sports, but squash in particular right now. So that's, that's certainly a challenge too. But if it's, if it's a midweek match that they're looking to schedule, sometimes it's easy to just do one or the other. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is like the staggered nature of the team championships that we start with this year, we start with the women first and then the men are second. So those, those teams that have a single, um, men's head coach versus a women's coach, they have flexibility to schedule kind of a, an additional weekend in the year that they're going second with the team championships. Right. I, I noticed that this year, I see that Princeton does have a match during the women's championship week. So for, you got it for, for certain. So, so uh, the season's going on um, as you're looking, I, I, I thought UVA would be one of the surprises this year. They've, they've done okay. They, they really haven't mm -hmm. jumped up as high as I thought, but uh, to me, what sticks out is Cornell. Um, the leap the Cornell, both programs, both on the men's and women's side have, have made is to me remarkable looking at some of their scores. They're, they're not far off from being like a top five team. I mean, right now they're, they're clinging to the, that eighth position and that Columbia, yeah. uh, Columbia match would be something to watch for sure. But, uh, talk about, uh, them and any other surprise teams you're, you're, uh, you, you've seen over the year. Yeah. Uh, you're hitting the nail on the head. Columbia, uh, Cornell is doing a phenomenal job. You know, David Palmer, former world number one is up there as a head coach. He's, um, you know, he, this is, um, probably his, I may, I may be a little off, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh year or something like that. And, and sometimes it takes a while to, uh, get the buy-in from the administration, get the, you know, admissions connections, financial aid connections, whatever it might be to, to get where they need to go. Uh, it seems like they've done that now. They have a really strong roster. Um, you know, on the women's side, you said they're close. I don't, I don't want to discount. They are fifth now. Uh, yeah, yeah. They just beat, they just beat Yale women for the first time in 21 years, I think last yep. weekend. So that's a big step. Um, you know, that Columbia Cornell women's matches, I have my eye on that just as much as the men's match too, because that could impact the seating, uh, as well. Um, but they've done a great job. You know, they have, um, Siva Subramaniam who thankfully is back playing, which is, a, which is just amazing. It's a great story. Uh, you know, very phenomenal good. story. Yeah. Uh, you know, had a, at a horrific, you know, vehicle accident and is, is now playing again and is leading Cornell and uh, doing a great job. So she, she's the defending individual national champion. She's back to finish her career this semester and, uh, and really strong. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's great to see. It's always great to see kind of new teams coming up, cycling through, um, uh, yeah, just, just excited for them and, and to see, how, see where that goes. Um, you know, Tufts University, Joe Rejo is the head coach there. He's doing a phenomenal job. They build a new facility. It kind of shows, you know, the investment that a program can get and then the results can come behind it. They build a new eight court facility, which is beautiful up on campus. And they're up in the top 12 now, I think maybe the men are a little lower, but they're, they're having, you know, strongly in the B division for this year and, and pushing some of the, you know, the, some of the Ivies and some of the higher ranked teams. So, um, 
you know, kudos to Joe and, and what they're doing up at Tufts. It's great to see. Yeah. Uh, on, on the individual side. So I looked at Cornell, a lot, I've looked at, I've been watching them and uh, just, as you said, their number one player, just, I think by far, I, she just played Stefanoni from Harvard the other day. And she, I mean, I don't know if Stefanoni was injured who knows what these circumstances are. I was expecting that to be kind of the battle, like who's going to win the individual championship. It might come down to them. Um, she waxed her. I mean, she yes. waxed her. And uh, it looks like her only competition. Uh, the the Columbia women that again that Columbia Cornell match, Farida Muhammad and and Simi yeah. Chan uh, both are uh, regular PSA players. Right. Um, they're going to go toe to toe at the top of that <laughs> of the top yeah. of that matchup, which will be amazing. Um, you know, Trinity's number one player is very talented, but I think um, I think Siva beat her just just last yeah. weekend. Yeah. Um, so they're they are for sure, um, and I think Farida just beat uh, Marina today in three or three one. So uh, pretty pretty handily uh, wow. there. So I think Farida and and Siva are are the top. But I know Simi has beaten Farida before um, at, within Colombia's like challenge matches. So pretty pretty nice problem to have there. Um, but we'll see what happens. You know, Siva coming back from injury, it's a it's a bit of a wild card. You know, they have to she has to play. Uh, the individual championships, you have to play four matches in three days. Right. So that's a tough, it's a tough task. Yeah. Um, yeah. It makes for some exciting squash though. And on, on the men's side individually, um, again, and just blankly looking at the results, it looks like Harvard's number one is, uh, is, is far and above the best player uh, in, in the CSA right now. Yeah. Uh, Marwan Tarek at number one at Harvard is, is, um, you know, he's, a, he's won, won it before he, he won it a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. right before the pandemic. Um, all of the guys who were involved, not all of them, but a lot of them who were involved before Andrew Douglas, you know, Ali Abu Alainen, Victor Kruin and, and Yusuf Ibrahim, they've all graduated now. And Marwan is, is still there. So he, he definitely has a leg up. Um, there are some exciting players for sure. You know, Ali Hussein and Marwan Tarek had a five game match that lasted some insane amount of time yep. earlier this season. So we'll see if that happens again. Matthias Knudsen at Drexel is a really, um, you know, really fun player to watch. He has great, you know, he, he we, we've launched a shot of the month uh, segment with the CSA and uh, Matias is a regular contributor because just right. of his, his skill right. and, and panache and the way that he approaches the game. So he could he could throw anybody off on any day. Um, and Chachanri, is that how he pronounces his name from Cornell? He gave, oh, he, Cornell he, Veer, Chachanri, yeah. Um, yeah. He, he's doing really well. I think he took a tough loss uh, recently, that was a little surprising. A little surprising. He, he took he took Tarek to uh, to five. Yeah, in, there in you like go. seventy yeah. something minutes. So he definitely has the game de- game to compete. So um, yeah, the the individuals once again will be a PSA level event. Interesting about uh, Maron Tarek, and I don't know if it's public or whether he talks about it or not. But I have uh, heard this from my my inside information uh, uh, of CSA, my my network of CSA uh, coaches that I talk to on a pretty regular basis. That he is not going to go play pro. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know too much about that personally. I just know what I see with the the results and and when when our players play in tournaments, you know, during the season and during their vacation times. Mm-hmm. And he's he is not one who is he's really popped up on that circuit, and that's been notable to me. But you know, it's it's really up to them and and how they want to. You know, we've had others like that in the past. Osama Khalifa, I you know when I, I used to work at Columbia, so I know Osama, and he you know was a phenomenal player, could have done that and chose chose to go a different route. Uh, right. So there have been others like that. And, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of college squash. You can find your path, whatever that might be. And for, for Marwan, it might not be the PSA, which, which I know for the PSA folks might be a bit disappointing for someone that talented, but, um, you know, there, there are certainly other pathways that college squash players find. 
Certainly. Um, <laughs> kind of zooming out with your position, you also network with other uh, executive directors or other sports. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious, kind of what are some trends that you're seeing going on at the, the higher level? Yeah, there's, um, there's a, big, a big eye on the NCAA and what, what is going to happen with the sort of the main governing body of intercollegiate sport in the U.S. They just got a new executive uh, president, I'm not sure what his uh, title is, who is the, now the former governor of Massachusetts. So definitely taking a more political bent, um, especially as it relates to name, image, and likeness and, um, mm. and other, other challenges that the NCAA is facing um, and trying to get some federal help involved. Um, they have a group called the Transformation Committee that's trying to figure out kind of a future and a way forward for the NCAA. It's, it's up against a lot of scrutiny, both on the federal level and on the state level, uh, with, um, you know, they're trying to do their best for student athlete rights and student athlete, um, empowerment. Um, but it's, it's a challenging road. It's not something that was really on the forefront for them for a long time. And they're realizing that they're behind the eight ball with that. And so, um, I think everyone is wondering about that. You know, we're wondering about it too. Squash is not currently an NCAA sport, but we've applied to a program called the Emerging Sports for Women program, which is a clear pathway to NCAA recognition and something that we believe can be helpful to us for growing the sport and adding more varsity teams and, and even club teams to um, uh, to our portfolio. So, uh, yeah, we definitely have our, our eye on that. Um, you know, the, the name, image, and likeness piece is a, is a big deal. Um Student athletes being able to control uh, how their name is used in the public sphere. Uh, it's grown out to the point where now schools have uh, groups that are paying the student athletes directly, which is like, you know, even five years ago was blasphemy. And, and now it's happening, you know, it's it, arguably it's out of control. And so finding a way to put some guardrails on that and, and understand the way forward that's, that's sustainable and feasible uh, is really important. Um, yeah. And there, you know, so there's, everyone's trying to grow sort of their, their circle of the world. And I've, I've found these other executive directors to be really, really helpful and supportive. You know, they understand we're other teams that are on this emerging sports list for women, for example, USA triathlon, uh, acrobatics and tumbling, uh, equestrian team, you know, sports like that, that are trying to build and add more female opportunities. Uh, they're super supportive and helpful. They, they love the idea of more, more sports getting involved and, and just providing those opportunities to to young women uh, who are coming out. So that's that's an important part for us. So with the the when NIL, we, just could I before we jump off of that, any squash players that you know of receiving NIL money? I haven't heard any this year. I heard when it first became a possibility, I had heard that some were doing it in years past, um, but on a very limited scale. So I wouldn't, you know, some of these some of these numbers being thrown around uh, with football, high profile football and basketball players, you know, right. millions of dollars. Uh, you don't hear about that, uh, not surprisingly, uh, in squash. But you know, I, I did hear about people um, getting kind of local local sponsorships or uh, people who were alumni of the school just saying, "Hey, you know, can you go on social media? If you go on social media and promote our product, we'll give you some free product." and uh, you know, maybe a little cash or something like right. that. But yeah, I heard um, Hannah, Hannah Montas was getting free conditioner. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> that's, you'll have to check your inside CSA sources. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will check that. I will check that. Okay. When you look at the other sports, um, what from a profile perspective, like what are, what's a comparable sport that squash is like in terms of like number of teams trying to go NCAA route? Like what 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 is our competition in there? Um. Again, you know, I wouldn't look at it as competition because you know the the different sports cater to different 
different de- different demographics, different regions of the of the of the world, and and things like that. But um, you know, one that jumps to mind that I've experienced is is intercollegiate rowing. So that right now they're they're probably about ten to fifteen years ahead of us in terms of progress. Their women's rowing is an NCA sport. Men's rowing is not an NCA sport, but men's rowing uh, has relied on um, women's rowing being an NCA sport to help guide some of their rules making and some of their championships and things like that. Um, and so looking at, they have a similar number of teams uh, as, as we do. I think they probably have more women's rowing teams. Women's, women's rowing is a, is a great sport in, in terms of um, uh, building those numbers and, and adding participation uh, within a, a gender equity perspective. And so uh, we can see how, how that would be beneficial to a lot of schools. Um, but I, so I've talked to them a little bit, you know, I think one, one, that's one bonus that we have, you know, we have 32 var- women's varsity teams right now. A lot of these sports that, that are, that are trying to build up, they start from almost scratch, you know, they, mm. they have almost no teams and they've been able to build up to 30 or 40, you know, um, like I said, triathlon, women's wrestling, acrobatics and stunt. They've all just surpassed this sort of 40 team threshold that the NCAA is looking for. And they've done it in kind of 10 years or less that, that the NCA is looking for. And so we're looking to kind of emulate that model, you know, talking to them. They've been very forthcoming about their best practices and the way that they contact other administrators and decision makers on campus to, to build up um, interest. And so that's, that's, that can only be helpful to us. Uh, I have a couple, just a couple more questions, David, before we let you go. Um, number one, uh, the transgender issue. Um, has that come to squash yet? Have you talked to your fellow you know, heads of uh, collegiate sports about how to handle that and, and just talk about, because obviously it's going to get more and more prolific as we go forward. Sure. Um, we have had a, a few, um, transgender individuals playing. Um, I know of one that, um, a, a I, I, I'm hesitant, uh, because I just want to make sure I get the terminology right. But, uh, I believe we had a transgender male compete, um, a, co- a couple years ago, one of my first years here, um, and then I, I believe we have an active player, but it, again, I think, I, I, I don't know, um, where that stands at the moment. Um, but it is something that is, is on our radar. Uh, we have a policy in place, but, uh, I do recognize that it, that policy should probably be, uh, reviewed and, uh, and we need some expert support to make sure that we're, we're, uh, we're finding the right way forward here because it is, it is such a sticky uh, and challenging issue. And, um, yeah, it, it's, there, there are a lot of competing voices. And so, you know, working with our, you know, our partners, you know, a lot of it, what the NCAA has done is, is point back to the national governing bodies and say, whatever their rule is, governs the, the NC, the college sports. And so it's really important to us to work with us squash to, to make sure we're on the same page and, uh, really tap into our greater network and, and hear people on this issue and then and then move forward with a policy that makes sense for squash in particular. Yeah, because I mean, in the end, it's going to come to the forefront when a, uh, you know, someone wants to play for one of the top women's teams that's going to compete for a national championship. Um, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, the one that grabbed the headlines was, was swimming, uh, swimming. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which is high profile within the Olympic community. Right. So that's right. why it gained sure. I think, extra attention. Um but that really caught, a, you know, the NCAA and a lot of, uh, you know, USA Swimming, I think, on their heels and brought right. it brought it to the forefront. And so it is important, you know, before it catches us off, us off guard, we we make sure we're we're trying to be on top of it. 
All right. And la- last thing I have for you, and then Connor c- could jump in afterwards, is um, so you have your national championships coming up. You are playing them, um, I believe, at UPenn uh, for the women and at uh, Trinity for the men. Um, any thoughts on moving all of your national championships? Uh, and only because I'm thinking of Trinity, it's going to be a zoo there, for lack of a better word, right? Like, it's not uh, yep. going to be a comfortable viewing situation for anyone. The amount of mm-hmm. people that are going to be there watching, the, I mean, Har- Harvard plays Penn for the championship. <laughs> Not to mention Trinity's there could be playing. I mean, it is going to be a, a zoo. It's going to be yep. very uncomfortable. Any thoughts about getting rid of the uh, home sites for the championships and moving everything down to the national center? We we are looking at that. We're we're reviewing our championship formats as we speak um, to see if there's a way. Uh, you know, one model that we're contemplating is creating kind of a uh, a week of squash. You know, kind of a uh, within squash, mm. the kind of final four type atmosphere. Um, it may be the A divisions, you know, so eight teams on the men's side and eight teams on the women's side competing in one place for the national championship. Separate, you know, right now our team championships, all the teams compete uh, within one gender on, on one weekend and it does become mm. – um, it, it becomes a major chore to to make sure we have everything covered. You know, the men's championship in particular is taking place at Trinity and Wesleyan University, you know, so we have dual sites – um, it becomes a bit unwieldy, uh, and hopefully we're, we have success in adding more teams and then, you know, we're just becomes more, more unwieldy beyond that. So we're in the process of reviewing our championship formats to see how we can really maximize that. And, and part of that is the locations and where that ends up. The, the thing I would emphasize that goes against that is, you know, the high school championships are happening at the same time. The middle school championships are a little earlier. You know, we have to fit into the calendar uh, of how things play out. And right now, there's at least one weekend during our championship season when we can't be at the Spectre Center uh, because the high school championships are there, in the near term at least. Um, and and so we, we will kind of have to continue to rotate around to host sites. And, and frankly, that's something that a lot of coaches like. You know, they like, you know, they feel like it's a college sport. It's a collegiate atmosphere. Uh, the home fans bring bring in that added element, as we saw at Penn last year with the men's team championships. So um, I don't think it, I don't think you'll see it go away completely in terms of the rotational aspect and having things on campus. But um, we're trying to be as comprehensive as possible in our kind of review, and and we'll see what nets out at the end. Right. I think it's a it's a testament to the popularity of the sport that it's even a factor that a place like Trinity can't comfortably hold a national championship. I, I guess it's a good thing. Uh, I, I myself would not go up there just because of I know what it, it wouldn't be a good experience on the fan side. Got it. Got it. So. Good feedback. Thank mm-hmm. you. What? Um, so you're in the thick of the season, which I know it's um, I mean, just juggling a lot. And um, I know you've had the merger of U.S. squash. You're working on the NCAA uh, admissions process. What else is sort of a high-level initiative that you're excited about or, you know, looking towards for the future? Well, one of the biggest things um, and is we are arriving at our 100th anniversary of intercollegiate team squash uh, in the United States. So February 18th, 1923 was the first documented team match between Harvard and Yale at the racket at the R&T club in New York. Um, we have a New York times article. So, you know, February 18th, 2023, which happens to fall during our women's championships is the hundredth, you know, literally the hundredth anniversary of that match. So, wow. That's um, cool. We are going to be celebrating 100 years of college squash uh, over the next kind of this 100th season, we're calling it, um, uh, over the next year and trying to use that as a launching point for growing the game, as we're saying, the next century of college squash or the next 100 years of college squash. Um, because 
uh, it's really, you know, we're in this critical juncture where we need to, we feel like we need to grow the game, adding more teams, both at the varsity level and the club level is really critically important. College squash plays such a critical role we feel in the, in the squash ecosystem, particularly in the U S and so having it thriving and, and providing as many options as possible to, um, to junior players who are, who aspire in some way, shape or form to play in college is really important. And, uh, but we need the help of the entire squash community, particularly those who, who, uh, who are affiliated in some way to college squash, uh, to really help us get on board, help us celebrate this huge momentous anniversary. And, uh, we're hoping to put on sort of a big event in, at the end of the hundredth season. So kind of March of 2024, um, to celebrate that and, uh, and just bring the whole community together and say, look, look what we've been able to do. Look where we're going from here. We're launching the next century of college squash and really securing our future uh, for uh, for the next hundred years. Well, that's that's very 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 exciting, and and congratulations on that, and congratulations on bringing squash to the to the next level from from where it, even where it was ten years ago. It's just an it's an incredible incredible uh, leap, and a lot of it's testament to your leadership. So we Ooh, appreciate you. you being on here, uh, Connor. Any last uh, last thoughts? No, thanks for thanks for being on, and, and thanks Connor for for waking up for the last ten minutes of the of the podcast. That was awesome. No, I appreciate it. I love the platform. I'm an avid listener. Uh, I haven't taken the time, you know, uh, I don't, I, I hear a lot, the, uh, long time listener, first time caller. Uh, <laughs> fortunately I'm not a first time caller, but I am a long time no. listener. So yeah. I, I appreciate the updates and, and your, your coverage of the college matches this season has been, uh, really spot on and, and expanding our, our network of coverage. So we appreciate it. Thanks. We're looking forward to the rest of the season. It should be like one of the most exciting. Like right now, very rarely can you not like pick who the, who's going to win the championship. Yeah, right? no, I, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, I Harvard, picked UPenn last two I, I weeks heard, ago, and that that, heard, that blew up into my face. Yeah, yeah, UPenn and Mo El Shabagi, uh, <laughs> you're on a roll right now. Don't 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 guess the the Super Bowl winner because then we'll have to bet against you, Bill. Exactly. The, the hate texts I got from Gilly Lane last week were not <laughs> not not fun. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he was not psyched about that, but they'll have a chance. You know, they'll have the chance if they, they will. if they take care of business on a neutral site. You never know. You know, those right. women's teams. You know, they're probably <laughs> maybe you know at least four, if not six or seven, women's teams that could potentially win it. So we sure. you know, couldn't be better for a college squash. We're really excited. So, so now that we've stopped recording, uh, David, who's your least favorite coach to deal with? Are we really stopped recording? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. If I mouth their name, can you uh, can you read my lips? <laughs> Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.